Book Two, Chapter Two of the History of Sir Richard Carmody. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Anne Fletcher, Richmond, Tasmania, two thousand and twenty. The History of Sir Richard Carmody by Lucas Mallet. Book Two, Chapter Two, in which our hero improves his acquaintance with many things, himself included it came about in this wise roger ormiston was expected at brockhurst after an absence of some years he had served with distinction in the sikh war and had seen fighting on a grand scale in the battles of sobraon and chilean waller later the restless genius of travel had taken hold on him leading him far eastward into china and northward across the himalayan snows he had dwelt among strange peoples and looked on strange gods he had hunted strange beasts moreover and learnt their polity and their ways he had seen the bewildering fecundity of nature in the tropic jungle and her barren and terrible beauty in the outstretch of the naked desert and the thought of all this set dicky's imagination on fire the return of roger ormiston was to him as the return of the mighty ulysses himself for a change was coming over the boy he began to weary of fable and cry out for fact he had just entered his fourteenth year he was growing fast and but for that dwarfing deformity would have been unusually tall graceful and well proportioned but along with this increase of stature had come a listlessness and languor which troubled lady carmody the boy was sweet-tempered enough had his hours indeed of overflowing fun and high spirits still he was restless and tired easily of each occupation in turn he developed a disquieting relish for solitude and took to camping out on one of the broad window seats of the long gallery in company with volumes of captain cook and hakluyt's voyages old-time histories of sport and natural history not to mention robinson crusoe and the merry but doubtfully decent pages of geoffrey gambardo and his mother noted not without a sinking of the heart that the window-seat which in his solitary moods dicky most frequented was precisely that one of the eastern bay which commanded beyond the smooth green expanse and red walls of the troco ground a good view of the grass ride running parallel with the lime avenue along which the horses from the racing stables were taken out and back morning and evening to the galloping ground then fears began to assail catherine that the boy's childhood the content and repose of it were nearly past small wonder that her heart should sink on the day of her brother's return catherine after rather anxious search so found richard he was standing on the book-strewn window-seat he had pushed open the tall narrow casement and leaned out the april afternoon was fitfully bright a rainbow spanned the landscape from the long water in the valley to the edge of the forest crowning the table-land here and there showers of rain fell showing white against huge masses of purple cloud piled up along the horizon and as catherine drew near threading her way carefully between the chinese cabinets oriental jars and many quaint treasures furnishing the end of the great room she saw that along the grass ride some twenty race-horses came streeling homeward in single file 
a long line of brown, chestnut, black, and of the raw yellows and scarlets of horse clothing against the delicate green of springing turf and opening leaves. Beside them, clad in pepper and salt mixture, breeches and gaiters complete, Mr. Chiffney pricked forward soberly on his handsome grey cob. The boys called to one another now and then, admonished a fretful horse breaking away from the string. One of them whistled shrilly a few bars of that then popular but undistinguished tune, Pop Goes the Weasel, and Richard craned far out, steadying himself against the stone mullion on either side with uplifted hands, heedless alike of his mother's presence and of the heavy drops of rain which splattered in at the open casement. "'Dicky! Oh, Dicky!' Catherine called in swift anxiety. "'Be careful! You'll fall!' She came close, putting her arm around him. "'You reckless darling!' she went on. "'Don't you see how dangerous the least slip would be?' The boy straightened himself and looked round at her. His blue eyes were alight. All the fitful brightness, all the wistful charm of the April evening was in his face. "'But it's the only place where I can see them, and they're such beauties,' he said. "'And I want to see them so much. "'You know we always miss them somehow, Mummy, when we go out.' Catherine was off her guard. Three separate strains of feeling influenced her just then. First, her growing recognition of the change in Richard, of that passing away of childhood which could not but make for difficulty, and, in a sense, for pain.' Secondly, the natural excitement of her brother's homecoming, disturbing the monotony of her daily life, bringing, along with very actual joy, memories of a past well-beloved, yet gone beyond recall. And lastly, the practical and immediate fear that Dicky had come uncommonly near tumbling incontinently out of the window. And so, being moved, she held the boy tightly, and answered rather at random, thereby provoking fate. "'Yes, my dearest, I know we always miss them somehow when we go out. It's best so. But do pray be more careful with these high windows.' "'Oh, I'm all right. I'm careful enough.' His glance had gone back to where the last of the horses passed out of sight behind the red wall of the gardens. "'But why is it best so?' "'Oh, they're gone,' he exclaimed. Catherine sat down on the window-seat, and Richard, clinging on to the window-ledge, while she still held him, lowered himself to a sitting position beside her. "'Thank you, Mummy,' he said, and the words cut her. They came so often in each day, and always with the same little touch of civil dignity. The courtesy of Richard's recognition of help given failed to comfort her for the fact that help was so constantly required.' Lady Calmady's sense of rebellion arose and waxed strong whenever she heard those thanks. "'Mother,' he went on, "'I want to ask you something. You won't mind?' "'Do I ever mind you questioning me?' Yet she felt a certain tightening about her heart. "'Oh, but this is different. I I've wanted to for a long while, but I didn't know if I ought. And yet I did not quite like to ask Auntie Marie or Julius.' "'And, of course, one doesn't speak to the servants about anything of that sort.' Richard's curly head went up with a fine little air of pride as he said the last few words. His mother smiled at him. There was no doubt as to her son's breeding. "'Well, 
"'What, then?' she said. "'I want to know, you sure you don't mind, "'why you dislike the horses "'and never go to the stables or take me there. "'If the horses are wrong, why do we keep them? "'And if they're not wrong, why, mother, don't you see, "'we may enjoy them, mayn't we?' "'He flushed, looking up at her, "'and spoke coaxingly, merrily, "'a trifle embarrassed by his own temerity, "'yet keen to prove his point "'and acquire possession of this so coveted joy. "'Catherine hesitated. "'She was tempted to put aside his question "'with some playful excuse, "'and yet, where was the use? "'The question must inevitably be answered one day. "'And Catherine, as has been said, "'was moved just now.' dumbness of long habit somewhat melted. Perhaps this was the appointed time. She drew her arm from around the boy and took both his hands in hers. My dearest, she said, our keeping the horses is not wrong, but one of the horses killed your father. Richard's lips parted, his eyes searched hers. But how? he asked presently. Oh, he was trying it at a fence, and it came down with him, and trampled him. There was a pause. At last the boy asked rather breathlessly, Was he killed then, mother, at once? It had been Catherine's intention to state the facts simply, gravely, and without emotion. But to speak of these things after so long silence proved more trying than she had anticipated. The scene in the red drawing-room the long agony of waiting and of farewell rose up before her after all these years with a vividness and poignancy that refused to be gainsaid. No, she answered. He lived four days. He spoke to me of many things he wished to do, and I have done them all, I think. He spoke to me of you. Catherine closed her eyes. The boy might care for the stables. The boy must ride straight. For the moment she could not look at Richard, knowing that which she must see. The irony of those remembered words appeared too great. But he suffered, she went on brokenly. He suffered, oh, my dear. Oh, Mummy, darling Mummy, don't look like that, Dicky cried. He wrenched his hands from her grasp and threw his arms impulsively about her neck. "'Don't! It hurts me! Uh, and after all,' he added, reasoningly, consolingly, "'it wasn't one of these horses, you know. They've never done anybody any harm. It was an accident. There must always be accidents sometimes, mustn't there? And then, you see, it all happened long, long ago.' Oh, it must have, for I don't remember anything about it. It must have happened when I was a baby. Alas, no, Catherine exclaimed, wrung by the pathos of his innocent egoism. It happened even before then, my dearest, before you were born. With the unconscious arrogance of childhood, Richard had so far taken his mother's devotion very much as a matter of course. He had never doubted that he was, and always had been, the inevitable centre of all her interests. So now, her words and her bearing, bringing, in as far as he grasped them, the revelation of aspects of her life quite independent of his all-important little self, staggered him. 
For the first time, poor Dicky realised that even one's own mother, be she never so devoted, is not her child's exclusive and wholly private property, but has a separate existence, joys and sorrows apart. Instinctively, he took his arms from about her neck and backed away into the angle of the window-seat, regarding her with serious and somewhat startled attention. And doing so, he for the first time realised consciously something more, namely the greatness of her beauty. For the years had dealt kindly with Catherine Calmady, not the great sorrows of life or its great sacrifices, but fretfulness, ignoble worries and sordid cares are that which draw lines upon a woman's face and harshen her features. At six-and-thirty Lady Calmady's skin was smooth and delicate, her colour still clear and softly bright. Her hair, though somewhat darker than of old, was abundant. Still she wore it rolled up and back from her forehead, showing the perfect oval of her face. Her eyes, too, were darker, and the expression of them had become profound, the eyes of one who has looked on things which may not be told, and has chosen her part. Her bosom had become a little fuller, but the long inward curve of her figure below it to the round and shapely waist, and the poise of her rather small hips, was lithe and free as ever. While there was that enchanting freshness about her, which is more than the mere freshness of youth or of physical health, which would seem, indeed, to be the peculiar dowry of those women who, having once known love in all its completeness and its strength, of choice live ever afterwards in perfect chastity of act and thought, and a perception not only of the grace of her person, as she sat sideways on the window-seat in her close-fitting grey gown, with its frills, lace collar and ruffles at the wrists, came to Richard now. He perceived something of this more intimate and subtle charm which belonged to her. He was enthralled by the clear sweetness, as of dewy grass newly turned by the scythe, which always clung about her, and by the whispering of her silken garments when she moved. A sudden reverence for her came upon him, as though behind her gracious and so familiar figure he apprehended that which belonged to a region superior, almost divine. And then he was seized, it is too often the fate of worshippers, with jealousy of that past of hers of which he had been until now ignorant. And yet another emotion shook him, for in thus realising and differentiating her personality, he had grown vividly, almost painfully, conscious of his own. He turned away, laying his cheek against the stone window-ledge, while the drops of a passing scud of rain beat in on his hot face. Then, then my father never saw me he exclaimed vehemently, and after a moment's pause added, "'I'm glad of that, very glad.' "'Oh, but my dearest!' Lady Calmady cried, bewildered and aghast. "'You don't know what you're saying. Think!' Richard kept his face to the splashing rain. "'I don't want to say anything wrong, but,' he repeated, "'I am glad.' He turned to her, his lips quivering a little, and a desolate expression in his eyes, which told Catherine with only too bitter assurance that his childhood and the repose of it were indeed over and gone. She held out her arms to him in silent invitation and drew the dear curly head onto her bosom. "'You're not displeased with me, Mummy?' 
does this seem as if i was displeased she asked then they sat silence once more catherine swaying a little as she held him soothing him almost as in his baby days i won't lean out of the window again he said presently with a sigh of comfort i promise that oh there's a darling but i'm afraid we must go uncle roger will be here soon the boy raised his head mother he said quickly will you send clara please to put away these books and may i have winter to fetch me i'm tired if you don't mind i don't care to walk yet since happily at thirteen richard's moods were still as many and changeful as the aspects of that same april day he enjoyed some royally unclouded hours before he most unwillingly retired to bed that night for on close acquaintance the great ulysses proved a very satisfactory hero roger ormiston's character had consolidated it was to some purpose that he had put away the pleasant follies of his youth he looked out now with a coolness and patience born of wide experience upon men and upon affairs he had ceased to lose either his temper or his head acquiescing with undismayed and cheerful common sense in the fact that life as we know it is but a sorry business and that rough things must of necessity be done and suffered every day he had developed an active though far from morbidly sentimental compassion for the individual man and beast alike not that colonel ormiston formulated all that still less held forth upon it he was content as is so many another englishman to be a dumb and practical philosopher for which those who have lived with philosophers of the eloquent sort will unquestionably give thanks knowing to their sorrow how often handsome speech is but a cloak to hide incapacity of honest doing and so after dinner under plea of an imperative need of cigars ormiston had borne dicky off to the gun-room and there in the intervals of questioning him a little about his tastes and occupations had told him stories many and great for he wanted to get hold of the boy and judge of what stuff he was made like all sound and healthy-minded men he had an inherent suspicion of the abnormal he could not but fear that persons unusually constituted in body must be victims of some corresponding crookedness of spirit but as the evening drew on he became easy on this point whatever richard's physical infirmity his nature was wholesome enough therefore when at close upon ten o'clock lady carmody arrived in person to insist that dicky must go there and then straight to bed she found a pleasant scene awaiting her the square room was gay with lamplight and firelight which brought into strong relief the pictures of famous horses and trophies of old-time weapons matchlocks basket-handled swords and neat silver-hilted rapiers prettiest of toys with which to pink your man that decorated its white panelled walls ormiston stood with his back to the fire one heel on the fender his broad shoulders resting against the high chimney-piece his head bent forward as he looked down in steady yet kindly scrutiny at the boy his face was tanned by the sun and wind of the long sea voyage people still came home from india by the cape 
till his hair and moustache showed pale against his bronze skin. And to Richard, listening and watching from the deep armchair drawn up at right angles to the hearth, he appeared as a veritable demigod, master of the secrets of life and death, beheld, moreover, through an atmosphere of fragrant tobacco smoke, curiously intoxicating to unaccustomed nostrils. Dickie had tucked himself into as small a space as possible to make room for young Camp, who lay outstretched beside him. The bulldog's great underhung jaw and pendulous wrinkled cheeks rested on the arm of the chair as he stared and blinked rather sullenly at the fire, moved and choked a little, slipping off unwillingly to sleep, to wake with a start, to stare and blink once more. The embroidered couvre-pieds which Dickie had spread across him, gathering the top edge of it under the front of his eaten jacket, offered luxurious bedding. But Camp was a typical conservative, slow-witted, stubborn against the ingress of a new idea. This tall, somewhat masterful stranger must prove himself a good man and true, according to bulldog understanding of those terms, before he could hope to gain entrance to that faithful, though narrow, heart. Ormiston, meanwhile, finely contemptuous of canine criticism, greeted his sister cheerily. "'You're bound to give us a little law to-night, Kitty,' he said, holding out his hand to her. "'We won't break rules and indulge in unbridled licence as to late hours again, will we, Dick? "'But, you see, we've both been doing a good deal one way and another since we last met, "'and there were arrears of conversation to make up.' He smiled very charmingly at Lady Calmedy, and his fingers closed firmly on her hand. "'We've been getting on famously.' notwithstanding our long separation. He looked down at Richard again. Fast friends already, and mean to remain so, don't we, old chap? Thereupon Lady Carmody's soul received much comfort. Her pride was always on the alert, fiercely sensitive concerning Richard, and the joy of this meeting had till now an edge of jealous anxiety to it. If Roger did not take to the boy, then deeply though she loved him, Roger must go, for the same elements were constant in Catherine Carmody. Not all the discipline of thirteen years had tamed the hot blood in her which made her order out the clown for execution. But as Ormiston spoke, her face softened, her eyes grew luminous, and smiled back at him with an exquisite gladness. The soft gloom of her black velvet dress emphasised the warm golden whiteness of her bare shoulders and arms. Ormiston, seeing her just then, understanding something of the drama of her thought, was moved from his habitual cool indifference of bearing. "'Catherine,' he said, "'do you know you take one rather by surprise? Upon my word, you're more beautiful than ever.' and Richard's clear voice rang out eagerly from the depths of the big chair. "'Oh, yes, yes, isn't she, Uncle Roger? Isn't she delicious?' The man's smile broadened almost to laughter. "'You young monkey,' he said very gently. "'So you've discovered that fact already, have you? Well, so much the better. It's a safe basis to start from. Don't you think so, Kitty?' But Lady Carmody drew away her hand. The blood had rushed into her face and neck, 
her beauty now for so long had seemed a negligible quantity a thing that had outlasted its need and use since he who had so rejoiced in it was dead what is the value of ever so royal a crown when the throne it represents has fallen to ruin and yet being very much a woman those words of praise came altogether sweetly to catherine from the lips of her brother and her son she moved away embarrassed not quite mistress of herself sat down on the arm of richard's chair leaned across him and patted the bulldog who raised his heavy head with a grunt and slapped dicky smartly in the stomach with his tail by way of welcome you dear foolish creatures she said pray talk of something more profitable i am growing old and in some ways i am rather thankful for it all the same dicky darling you positively must and shall go to bed but colonel ormiston interrupted her he spoke with a trace of hesitation turning to the fireplace and flicking the ash off the end of his cigar um, <clears throat> by the by catherine uh, how's mary cathcart have you seen her lately oh yes last week ah then she's not gone the way of all flesh and married no lady carmody answered she bent a little lower tracing out the lines on the dog's wrinkled forehead with her finger several men have asked her to marry but there is only one man in the world i fancy whom mary would ever care to marry oh poor camp did i tickle you and he i believe has not asked her yet ah there oh mr exclaimed quickly you are mistaken am i catherine said i have great faith in mary i suppose she was too wise to accept even him being not wholly convinced of his love lady carmody raised her eyes and ormiston looked very keenly at her and richard watching them felt his breath come rather short with excitement for he understood that his mother was speaking in riddles he observed moreover that colonel ormiston's face had grown pale for all its sunburn and so catherine went on i think the man in question had better be quite sure of his own heart before he offers it to mary cathcart again ormiston flung his half-smoked cigar into the fire he came and stood in front of richard uh, <clears throat> look here old chap he said what do you say to our driving over to newlands to-morrow you can set me right if i've forgotten any of the turns in the road you know and you and miss cathcart are great chums aren't you oh mother may i go the boy asked lady carmody kissed his forehead yes my dearest she said i will trust you and uncle roger to take care of each other for once you may go the immediate consequence of all which was that richard went to bed that night with a brain rather dangerously active and eyes rather dangerously bright so that when sleep at last visited him it came burdened with dreams in which the many impressions and emotions of the day took altogether too lively a part causing him to turn restlessly to and fro and throw his arms out wide over the cool linen sheets and pillow for there was new element in dicky's dreams to-night namely a recurrent distress of helplessness and incapacity of movement and therefore of escape in the presence of some oncoming multitudinous terror 
he was haunted, moreover, by a certain stanza of the ballad of Chevy Chase. It had given him a peculiar feeling, sickening yet fascinating, ever since he could remember first to have read it, a feeling which caused him to dread reading it beforehand, yet made him turn back to it again and again. And tonight, sometimes Richard was himself, sometimes his personality seemed merged with that of Witherington, the crippled fighting man, of whose maiming and deadly courage that stanza tells. And the battle was long and fierce, as from out a background of steeple-shaped honeycombed rocks and sparse trees with large golden leaves, like those on the panels of the great lacquered cabinets in the long gallery, innumerable hordes of fanatic Chinamen poured down on him a hideous bedizenment of a million war-devils painted on their blue tunics and banners and shields. And he, Richard, oh, was it he, Witherington, alone facing them all, they countless in number, always changing, yet always the same. From under their hard, upturned hats, a peacock feather erect in each, the cruel, oblique-eyed, impassive faces stared at him. They pressed him back and back against the base of a seven-storied pagoda, the wind-bells of which jangled far above him from the angles of its tiers of fluted roofs. And the sky was black and polished, and yet it was broad, glaring daylight, every object fearfully distinct. And he was fixed there, unable to get away, because... Yes, of course, he was Witherington, so there was no need of further explanation of that inability of escape. And still, at the same time, he could see Chiffney on the handsome grey cob, trotting soberly along the green ride, beside the long string of racehorses coming home from exercise. The young leaves were fragile and green now, not sparse and metallic, and the April rain splashed in his face. He tried to call out to Tom Chiffney, but the words died in his throat. If they would only put him on one of those horses! He knew he could ride, and so be safe and free. He called again. That time his voice came. They must hear. Were they not his own servants, after all, and his own horses? Or would be soon, when he was grown up? But neither the trainer nor the boys so much as turned their heads, and the living ribbon of brown and chestnut swept on and away out of sight. No one would heed him. No one would hearken to his cry. Once his mother and some man whom he knew yet did not know passed by him hand in hand. She wore a white dress and smiled with a look of ineffable content. Her companion was tall, gracious in bearing and movement, but unsubstantial, a luminous shadow merely. Richard could not see his face, yet he knew the man was of near kin to him, and to them he tried to speak, but it was useless. For now he was not Richard any more. He was not even Witherington, the crippled fighting man of the Chevy Chase ballad. He was... He was the winged seagull, with its pale, wild eyes, hiding, abject yet fierce, among the vegetable beds in the Brockhurst kitchen gardens, and picking up loathsome provender of snails and slugs. 
Roger Ormiston, calm, able, kindly, yet just a trifle insolent, cigar in mouth, sauntered up and looked at the bird, and it crawled away among the cabbages ignominiously, covered with the shame of its incompleteness and its fallen estate. And then, from out the honeycombed rocks, under the black polished sky, the blue tunic Chinaman swept down on Richard again, with a maddening horror of infinite number. They crushed in upon him nearer and nearer, pressing him back against the wall of that evil pagoda. The air was hot and musky with their breath, and thick with the muffled roar of their countless footsteps. And they came right in on him, trampling him down, suffocating, choking him with the heat of them and the dead weight. Shouting aloud, as it seemed to him, in angry terror, the boy woke. He sat up, trembling, wet with perspiration, bewildered by the struggle and the wild phantasmagoria of his dream. He pulled open the neck of his nightshirt, leaned his head against the cool brass rail of the back of the bedstead, while he listened with growing relief to the rumble of the wind in the chimney and the swish of the rain against the casements, and watched the narrow line of light under the door of his mother's room. Yes, he was Richard Calmady after all, here in his own sheltered world, among those who had loved and served him all his life. Nothing hurtful could reach him here, nothing of which he need be afraid. There was no real meaning in that ugly dream. And then Dicky paused a moment, still sitting up in the warm darkness, pressing his hands down on the mattress on either side to keep himself from slipping. For involuntarily he recalled the feeling which had prompted his declaration that he was glad his father had never seen him, recalled his unwillingness to walk lest he should meet Ormiston unexpectedly, recalled the instinct which even during that glorious time in the gun-room had impelled him to keep the embroidered couvre-pieds carefully over his legs and feet. And recalling these things, poor Dicky arrived at conclusions regarding himself which he had happily avoided at arriving at before. For they were harsh conclusions, causing him to cower down in the bed and bury his face in the pillows to stifle the sound of the tearing sobs which would come. Alas, was there not only too real a meaning in that same ugly dream and that shifting of personality? He understood, while his body quivered with the anguish of it, that he had more in common with, and was nearer, far nearer, to the maimed fighting man of the old ballad, even to the poor seagull robbed of its power of flight, than to all those dear people whose business in life it seemed to pet and amuse him and to minister to his every want, to the handsome soldier uncle whose homecoming had so excited him, to Julius March, his indulgent tutor, to Mademoiselle de Mirancourt, his delightful companion, and to Clara, his obedient playfellow, to brown-eyed Mary Cathcart, and even to his lovely mother herself. Thus did the bitter winds of truth, which blow forever across the world, first touch Richard Carmody, cutting his poor boyish pride as with a whip. But he was very young, and the young, mercifully, know no such word as the inevitable, so that the wind of truth is ever tempered for them, the first smart of it over, 
by the sunshine of ignorant and unlimited hope. End of chapter 2 of book 2